Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hello, hello, hello. It's Martin Ware here with Electronically Yours, your favourite podcast, I hope. I'm trying my best anyway. Um, Today, one of the people I admire most in the entire music industry is on the show, which is quite a rarity. He's not only a great uh, entrepreneur and uh, music label mogul, he has made one of my favourite singles of all time uh, when he was the normal. He's also a really good DJ and uh, record producer. He's pretty much a renaissance kind of dude, like a lot of the people are that I have on these podcasts. I use that same term for Thomas Dolby. Um, his name, of course, is Daniel Miller. And I think it's really interesting to hear him talk because he's not on the TV all the time doing interviews he's not actually his band isn't active he puts the occasional thing out Uh, but I know him um, because I put a couple of records out with Vince on Mute Records and we've been friends ever since we met he's a thoroughly decent individual I am such a kind of fanboy really in his presence he covers all the bases that I admire you know he's such a lovely guy And um, he's also very successful, so it shows you don't have to be a complete arsehole to be successful. So, you'll find a lot out about the music industry, and quite a lot about the history of electronic pop music in this country. And uh, here he is, Daniel Miller. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm very, I'm glad to be here rather than in London for a lot of different reasons. My yeah. wife is here and, you know, so it's, it's, we got to spend some time together, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, um, let me just I, see. Just, what's it like? Run, I, I have actually started recording, if you, so just to let you know. Um, what's uh, it like running a record company in these days? Must be well, weird. It's shockingly. Sorry, I'm just going to switch my phone off. It's shockingly um, productive. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, we've been uh, we've been working remotely. Yeah, for about a year now, and we slipped into it really easily. I mean, of course, there have been some problems with. I mean, I'm not putting all the live side to one side, which is. Uh, That's my problem, not your problem. Um, yeah. uh, well, it's our problem as well because obviously, yes, uh, you know, touring helps p- promote and lengthen the life of a of a, of a release. Mm. A few projects have been kind of held up because of they require musicians to be in the room together and mm. to travel, and which is a real shame. But we've been doing a lot of. I mean, a lot of our artists have got their own studios of some shape or form. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've been doing a lot of remote mixing as well, which has worked really well. Cool. So, uh, you know. Yeah, it could be worse, I suppose, for, for from a record company point of view. Yeah, um, and, you know, what yeah. do you think about this announcement yesterday from um, SoundCloud about this user-centric model for uh, for um, uh, artists to go and bypass record companies completely? That's kind of interesting. Have you seen that? I haven't actually seen it. Um, but is that different from just artists putting their music up on Spotify? Is it a different? 
Oh, model. totally different. Yeah, okay. because mo uh, nearly all the royalties go direct to the artists, uh, as opposed to Spotify. As you know, mm. mo most of it goes to the. Um, I mean, I, listen. I've always been in favour of people self-releasing if that's what they if that's the way they want to go. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how I started. I self-released. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, yeah. Um, exactly. You know, so I, you know, I think everybody. There's so many different uh, routes to releasing records, and it just depends on the, the what suits the the people who you know the band or the artist best, really. You are quite unusual in terms of record labels, in as much as, um, I mean, you think like an artist, right? So you, you're not just going. I hate to say, but a lot of the major labels, rapacious, as far as I'm concerned, mm -hmm. uh, that's a good word, isn't it? Um, but they, they, you know, you, you, I always get the, um, I always get the impression that you genuinely love and care about the artists on your label as a representation of your kind of curatorship. And uh, and you always give them decent deals. And is it true, I have to ask you this question, that you don't have a written contract with Vince and and Andy from Eurasia? Yeah, that is Isn't true. Isn't that fucking, um, excuse, you're allowed to swear on this podcast if you want. I know you don't very much. I do. <laughs> oh, I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, what a, an amazing thing in today's world that there's such trust exists between an artist and a record label. Well, we, you know, we've been working together for... Uh, what year are we in? 21? Yeah, since, yeah, for like 41 years now. Shit. And, um, you know, at the beginning, none of our artists had contracts. In the first five or six years of me, none of the artists that we worked with had contracts. Um, they were all on profit share deals. Like rough trade and, deals, yeah? Yeah, exactly. So just to explain that to the listeners who may not be so familiar, it's basically 50-50 yeah. split after costs are covered right it's, yes it's 50 50 split of the of the profit really yeah. um and that suits everybody quite well i think and it's fair <clears throat> it's, it's very fair i think one of the reasons that i like it which works for some artists better than others because you're spend because it's a profit share rather than a, a royalty the, the amount of money you spend on certain things goes against that profit yeah so you know, you 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 can work with the artist on that. You consult the artist, and they're much more involved with the process, which is something that I felt was very important, certainly at the beginning. It's very um, interesting that Daniel, because when we started with um, working in the early days of, of of Virgin Records, we made it our absolute intention to work in you know in tandem with mm. the record label rather than regarding them as some as you know having a, a, a boss man and uh, and slave relationship yeah it's a partnership yeah it's much yeah. more of a partnership now that doesn't suit everybody not some artists just don't really want to get involved in that particularly they just want to know if i sell 100 records i know i'm going to get exactly this amount which is right. a standard royalty deal yeah. So you dis do you discuss um, the marketing spend? I mean, we, I, you know, I've released records on your label, so I'm, mm. I think I know what the answer. Is. I mean, it's more for the lis listeners, really. Mm. Do you discuss marketing spend with with the um, artists? Yeah, if it's a profit share deal. I mean, yeah. we do we do fewer profit share deals these days because of for various reasons. We, but we still do them. If an artist wants to do a profit share deal, we'll do it. Right. Uh, if obviously, if it's not a profit share deal the budget the marketing budget doesn't affect their income 
Um, obviously, the yeah, recording costs do, yeah. um, but but not but not the marketing budget. But yeah, of course, if there's a if it's a profit share deal, yeah, it's, it's just it's interesting actually, because whilst you make it sound very elegant and swan-like on the surface, it's actually, uh, uh, um, as far as I'm concerned, it's quite unusual for a, for a mm. um, you know a kind of medium-sized to successful label mm. to to go down that path, and it's really. You know, if you believe that a uh, an organisation is an embodiment of the person who leads it, I believe you are the perfect example of that. Listen, I'm your biggest fan. You know that anyway. So <laughs> I am. I am definitely always evangelising about mute and what great people you all are. Um, I mean, I think I think you know, semi consciously, subconsciously, or whatever. I, you know, it's the la it's, uh, it's a label. I wanted mute to be a label that I wanted to be. I would have liked to have been signed to. Yeah. And um, I, mean, I don't think about it in those, you know, clear terms, but that I realized that, you know, I wouldn't want somebody to say, um, I don't know, uh, rewrite the lyrics because it's not going to get on Radio 1, you know what I mean, or whatever. Um, exactly. What happened when you sold Mute, didn't you? Or, or rather, tell me no, how that worked. I, I'm still kind of fascinated by it. It was EMI, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's a bit of a story behind it, a longer story. You know, we, and it's my, you know, I take responsibility for that. I mean, we had a, you know, during this sort of late 80s through to the mid 90s, we were hugely successful. Um, and um, we had a big staff. And those, because, you know, to, to remind the younger members of your audience who might be <laughs> This is before the internet. We don't have any younger members, Daniel. Okay. <laughs> well, to remind your uh, pre your older <laughs> members, I'd like to. Uh, we don't. Um, you know, before you know, we used to do all our international. Okay, so we worked with four, around around forty different countries. That's a lot. And and for, and they all pressed locally because right. you know records still sold in those days, and so you had to have forty art pieces of artwork. You have to have forty. <laughs> master tapes you had to have 40 photo sessions you know it was, it was about half the people who were working at mute at that time were shipping stuff basically right do you know what i mean anyway we you know and just around the time of Britpop, which was kind of very uh counterintuitive to me Britpop, because for me it was very backward looking yeah mute, i'd like I agree. to this forward looking i mean i'm not you know there were some good songs and there were some good bands but it was just wasn't what we were interested in yeah and the media was, you know, the, the rate, you know, basically radio and, and press were totally um, obsessed with Britpop and really weren't interested in anything else apart from, you know, there might be a, a, a techno column or something. Um, and we kind of stagnated a bit. And the, the artists who were successful, like Depeche and Erasure and Nick Cave, um, were releasing records less frequently, which is fine. You know, as they became more successful, they their touring became more successful and they would, you know, all those things, but, it, you know, all for good reasons. Um, but I think I wasn't quick enough to, to really realize the impact of that on the company because we maintained a huge staff. And so we, we had some, uh, you know, we got into some financial, uh, you know, I would say there, were, there was a situation that could have threatened the company in some way, okay? And obviously, I didn't want that to happen. And um, I tried to do, like, against my better judgment, 
not, uh, not against, yeah, against what I would have normally. I tried to do like an international distribution deal. Right. But Mute was perceived at that time as being a Coles label, and um, well, <laughs> I suppose which is, you, know, you know, you know the bit, you know, and um, and it was hard to do. And then just as you know, just as things were getting quite desperate, or not desperate, it's a bit extreme, difficult. Moby's play was released. All oh, right, there you go. That gets you <laughs> out of jail. And it took a year to really take off before it was the fourth single that actually kicked it off, you know. Right. And all of a sudden, I was a genius, you know. And uh, you've always <laughs> been a genius. I should imagine. I, when I say genius, I'm doing it with the, you know. Yeah. I should I'm imagine the sync alone on the on the album was phenomenal, wasn't it? Yeah, it was phenomenal. And it was like the cavalry coming over the hill. It really was. It really felt like that. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted to do something with us, okay? Yeah, so yeah. so I, t I took a view, uh, rightly or wrongly, that I didn't want to go through that pain of the previous few years again. And if we could get a deal where we had artistic freedom and we, we basically ran the company... Mm -hmm. within another company, then I would consider it, you know. And Emmanuel de Bortel at the time, who you probably know yeah. of, well, he'd run Virgin France for, for many years, and one of our licensees was Virgin France. But by that time, he knew Mute, and was a big Mute fan, and understood what we were doing. And, but in the meantime, he'd become the head of Continental Europe for EMI. Right. And he gave us a deal... I mean, which was financially great, but also, but more importantly, was creatively great. We were left alone to do what we wanted. Wow! Uh, they just apart, you know, they'd look over the books once every six months. But you know, we. But, but then he, but he was a kind of he's a, a, a maverick character, which didn't really fit into the corporate. Um, Not to your mind, no. and especially because yeah, I mean, it's a long story, but. His new boss, him and his new boss fell out, basically, and he left. And then I wouldn't say things got worse because we had a contract and things were very tight in the contract. But the vibe, the atmosphere, mm. and EMI were going through te terrible problems as well at the time. You know, the, So it was a bit of a mess. But, I mean, that's why I sold, I sold it to protect Mute. But I wouldn't have done it if we didn't have the kind of control that they gave us. I don't um, understand. I don't, what, can you explain something to me? Because it always mm. mystified me. Um, mm. When you sold it, I remember reading about it in the um, in Music Week or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, when you when you sold it, I thought Daniel's a very good businessman here because if he's got all this creative freedom, what are they buying? I mean, uh, I mean, if you were if if you were uh, not. If, Right. The reasons why you, why you sold it is because you were in cash flow difficulties, presumably because of mm. the amount of mm. staff that you got. But if it wasn't making money and it wasn't forecast, did they think that it was forecast to make loads and loads of money for them, presumably? Well, they bought what they bought. They bought the catalogue, which was had right. lots of records on it. Um, they bought... Um, if there were contracts, they bought the contracts, but they also bought as I, uh, the loyalty of people like Vince. Yeah, of course. In the sense, course. not the loyal, not they didn't buy his loyalty to them. They yeah, yeah. recognized the loyalty that that you know, and um, 
Yeah, and, and of course they did the distribution where they made quite a big margin. Oh, right. With, okay. uh, yeah, they did the worldwide distribution. So that gave them a, a healthy margin as well. So I okay, think they so they the crunched numbers. the numbers and it made sense to them. I, I mean, whether I made money for them or not, I have no idea. <laughs> but you... yeah. Honestly, you sold it honestly, for a no. lot of money, and you bought it back <laughs> for a fraction of that, didn't you? No, well, I didn't buy it back. I um, buying it back. I oh god, it's, it's, it's the machinations of the, the music industry. Um, I left. I I left there. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I did it, it. I decided, and it was. Um, what's their names? I forgot their names now. Had bought EMI, and um, and that was a nightmare, really, because EMI were in a lot of trouble, and was, these people didn't really know anything I think, about. I think the it was Beelzebub, wasn't it, or some something? Is that? <laughs> it was a terra firma, terra firma. <laughs> terra firma that was it. Yeah. Who were basically, uh, you know, uh, you know, they owned. I mean, they owned the Odeon Cinema chain, and they owned all the motorway service stations in Germany. You know. They were they weren't really interested in the music business. They were interested in asset stripping, I suppose. Yeah. Making you know. Anyway, it came to a point where what well, there's one guy who was a terra firma guy who was in EMI called uh, David Kassler, who I got on very well with actually, and we kind of talked about how it was going, and uh, you know we both agreed that it wasn't at that by that time that EMI was not a really good place for mute to be. For lots of different yeah. reasons and so we we did a kind of i did an exit strategy with him right um but i didn't you know but they still owned the catalog right so when so i didn't buy i wanted to buy the catalog at a certain point but i would i tried to buy it off universal because emi sold to universal i don't know how interesting this is all for your podcast it's, 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 very, it's very interesting because um you know, i've got loads so of the, uh, musicians talking about their shit but it's very rare mm. we get to talk to somebody who i respect so much in the music industry uh, to explain so how it all works so basically they just after i left emi or we left emi so, so the idea was I'm le we're leaving EMI. We don't have a catalog at all because they own the catalog. Um, they had some of the bigger artists like Depeche. They had them on a slightly, and Richard Hawley actually had them on a longer contract because um, they paid them a lot of money. And that they stayed. I left with my team, which was by that time much smaller. Yeah. Um, and um, a lot of the artists came with me who could come with me. Cool. Um, so it's quite uh, it's quite tangled then, wasn't it? But I think you still got yeah. an amazing uh, result mm. out of it. I, I personally yeah, and, and the money and the money that uh, the EMI paid me for mute, I put back into restarting it because we were starting from scratch. Um, mm. Not every penny, but you know, a lot of that, a lot of that went back into restarting mute. So. And then we built up the catalog. EMI got sold to Universal. Oh, I joined the club, I tried, mate. I tried all my, to all my back catalogs on Universal now. I hate it. I tried. To, I tried to buy the catalog. They were wanted to sell the mute catalog, and I wanted to buy it. Um, but then, and I offered them what I thought was a lot of money. Then BMG stepped in, and. They were, uh, you know, when they re you know, when BMG restarted, they were in, in catalog acquisition. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
overdrive. And they paid a lot of money for it. They paid much more than I could afford um, to, to, to EMI. So they've got the catalogue. Right, okay. Well, let's you move know, on. But, we, but, we, but just, to, just to finish that off. Yeah. Because a lot of the catalogue was something, was the things that they were not really interested in. Yeah. Um, they were interested in Depeche. Well, they didn't get Depeche. That's a whole other story. But they got Nick Cave. They got Moby. They got the old Goldfrap catalogue, even though Goldfrap stayed with us for the new. And they got the Erasure catalogue. Erasure stayed with us. But there were a lot of other, you know, great artists who were not necessarily a viable commercially for them. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, you know, Fad Gadget or Knights of Reb or, you know, some of the Wire catalogue and so forth yeah. that we had. So we licensed that back from BMG. So we're still releasing a lot of those records, but you know, it's it's. Oh, yeah, I love sorry. all this shit. That's great. Honestly, I've got. But, to but you know, but now you know, but since I think it was 2010, we started up again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's been really good, actually. I have to say, it's we're smaller. We had to get smaller at that point because, and it's uh, it feels really good. Well, physical distribution isn't so much of a thing now, is it? Anyway, so it's well, it is better. for us actually. Is it? Vinyl is really for quite a lot of our artists is very you know very important right i mean we're all into the special edition thing aren't we we did with illustrious you kindly mm. uh, agreed to put out the 10 cd set limited edition mm. and we all made a bit of money out of that but uh, mm. actually people are it's going for quite a lot more on uh, ebay now i'm glad to say that's, that's the idea <laughs> isn't it let's invest <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, for Erasure band artists like Erasure or or Liars or I'm trying to think, a lot of the artists have a you know a huge uh, vinyl fan base because I think artists with really strong loyal fan bases they want yeah the physical. Yeah. They, they want the artist yeah and artists who've been you know who have a longer career you know their fans go back and they're they're older now and they still want the physical thing they want all the they want to be able to touch it and feel it, and we like to do good quality pressings and good yeah, yeah, packaging yeah. and things, so it makes it... Anyway, so, yeah, oh, so yeah physical distribution is very important. Anyway, that is really... Yeah, I mean, I know it, it might seem esoteric to some people listening, but I find it fascinating. Anyway, and if I find it fascinating, it's my fucking podcast, so you're going to have to listen to it until we get to the good stuff. That's what, that's what you should have called it, my fucking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Probably get more listeners. Actually, yeah. we're doing well. Um what was I going to say? So, it was number 13 in Apple Podcasts for music last, last week. Oh, um, brilliant. Considering we've only been going for like 10 weeks, I think it's quite good. Oh, um, what was I going to say? Right, so let's go back to uh, when you first started. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who I'm still friends with, most of them, um, and it's like a kind of secret. It's like the, it's like the synthetic Illuminati. We all... The people who were good people and who had in their heart a kind of futurist kind of attitude. Yeah. I mean, I'm getting a lot of them to do the podcast, to be honest. Um, mm. All seem to continue to do well, apart from the ones who are dead, of course. Um, mm. So, um, I mean, but, you know, obviously you you started off early doors working with people like Throbbing Gristle and the cabs and mm -hmm. and you've done stuff with them and you know all the really credible stuff you're like a I, I'm this is how I view you I think it's like a, a you're a touchstone for 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 credibility in this field mm -hmm. and I think that's a really rare thing and you're very self-effacing 
I don't know. Maybe you're not now. Maybe you're a big head. I don't know. No, well, I, I like. I hope. I hope I'm not. A big no, head. you're not. You're not. You're not. I'm the great. I'm the greatest. Yeah. I'm the you're the greatest. I think. I'm the touchstone. I am the touchstone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can use any of these. You know. I'm not charging. Thank you very much. I'm just. In fact, I'm just going to write. Uh, I, I was writing some notes down, and um, first of all, I want to tell you that um, warm leatherette is in my definitely in my top five singles of all time. I just oh, think it's a piece of of, of uh, crystalline genius. I think it's beautiful. Funny. And I know it's simple. I didn't realise until I looked it up that that was the Korg 700S. Is that right? Mm-hmm. It was all done on the Korg 700S, yeah. Well, I've got one right next to me here. I love them. <laughs> They're just amazing, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, it's the filters and everything. But yeah. I, it, to me, I listened back to that record. And listeners, if you've never heard Warm Leatherette, you will have done. But if you haven't, you should go and listen to it. it I, I wouldn't have identified it as a Korg 700S. It does. It, it's got a different kind of tone to it. I thought it might have been a. I think it, it sounds European, actually. If anything, I mean, it's funny you should say that because I had to do a talk a while ago uh, somewhere. I can't remember where it was now, Switzerland, and about music and technology and stuff and the guy who was uh, running the talk had a Korg 700s right. and he said oh i'll bring it along and you can show us some sound i said great fine no problem i have fun and it sounded really different from mine interesting uh, so mine might have been broken there's also the other the other thing is like, I, I was doing i did it on a four track tiac mm. seven and a half ips oh right and the, and the money on tape right <laughs> yeah and the tape i think i used second hand tape or something there was a problem with the heads and all the all the uh, oxide was coming off on the heads and i had to keep while i was mixing it which i hardly mixed it but i had to keep my finger on the uh really on the to push the tape up to the heads because that maybe has something to do with the sound i don't know but it's, um, it's really interesting yeah. I mean, it's got a slightly and um, this isn't meant to be an insult because i've told you how much i love it yeah. it's got a slightly thinner sound than you'd expect like the it's got bottom end but there's something anyway no, this is all yeah. technical shit. But um, anyway, I still love the well, It's funny because um, just on that note, I remember because I it's fairly early, early on after uh, I released that, I, I got to know a guy called Robert Rental. Yes, who, Robert. Yeah. Who was another? Who was another kind of home recording? Uh, and we and we were off. We did some gigs together as a duo together. And uh, I remember. I remember um, one of the early gigs, somebody came up to me after the gig and said, your production is shit. You should listen to Being Boiled by a human. <laughs> <league."> <laughs> well, we had one up on and you. We only had two tracks. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was the original Being Boiled. By the time we got to Travelog, it was multi-track. Yeah, but there was the, I mean, he was talking about they the original. talking about the original. Yeah, yeah. That literally was sound on sound. And, really? And I mean, that angry. sounded great. That sound, yeah. I thought that sounded really great. And I loved that when it came out. And I yeah, yeah. It, thank you. It was uh, quite an achievement. We didn't think anybody else would like it. It was only. Well, that's what I thought as well. I thought, I thought I'd press five hundred, which is the minimum, and they'd stay. You know, I'd give them to a few friends and family, and that would be it. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But um, the thing is, with uh, that period of time, I was going to ask you about this as well because there's always been a very strong uh, um, graphical. 
graphic design core to Mute Records and what you've done as well, TBOD and all that, yeah. and all that stuff. It all feels like it's from that. It's got. It's been considered very, very heavily, mm-hmm. and it's quite Bauhaus and not the group Bauhaus. I mean, kind of yeah. that kind of thing. And and um, I, you know, before I started the Human League, we were all making fanzines and stuff. Okay. And experimenting with putting stuff together, and of course the letter set thing on being boiled is. Yeah. Now it's so funny. In the Royal College of Art, somebody contacted me the other day saying, "Do you realise that you're like one of the lessons?" I mean, this is a kid who I can't draw for toffee, you know, and I never mm. finished school or anything. Like they went through, they went through some of our early graphics, especially the bean boiled sleeve at the Royal College of Art, and I'm going, mm. this is just ironic, isn't it? You know, but don't don't. Anyway, the the point being, I think, you know, we process visually in a different part of the brain to the auditory. I think that the, the kind of visual imagination that was encouraged at that time with punk had an influence also on the music what, what do you think yeah because everything was uh, homemade yeah and i mean not all punk was homemade obviously but uh, but the punk aesthetic the punk movement rather than the punk punk rock should we say yeah because punk rock was still rock let's face it yeah but uh, you know, but the punk movement was all very homemade and cut ups and letter set and yeah, um, because that's the resources everybody had. You know, a photo, you know, a pair of scissors, a let some letter set, and the photocopying machine that they, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, and and it was very inspiring because it, it was very liberating because you could make a great looking fanzine or you could make a good sounding record at home. Um, right. Uh, with with very very limited resources, and it was an explosion of imagination. It was a lot of people. I mean, from music point of view, I could not have made that record at any other time. Um, Same with being boiled, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I, mean, all, I, well, I, th- I mean, I think what's interesting is that, and maybe you're going to come onto this later, but there are all these things happening at different parts of the country, completely unconnected from each other coming from a very similar place, you know. I mean, I don't know how connected you were with the cabs in Sheffield. and, and Very connected. They were our mentors, basically. Yeah. So you you two were, you lot were, no, but I didn't know anybody. And there were other people, you know, like the OMD guys and, all, you know, everybody was working. It was kind of a real moment, a special, very particular moment in history, you know, I think that could have only, that explosion in a way could really only have happened at that time, I think. Yes. That's my theory. And also, yeah, also the um the independent label thing mm. um was very important because of course there are independent labels now, you're in it, you know, but and there are small independent labels now, but so they this was a new thing back then. People don't really understand. <laughs> Everybody goes at sex pistols, you know, the damned, whatever. Mm. But the point is, particularly people like the damned, for instance. And say the fast product stuff that went on up there, and all that sort of stuff could never have been, would never have happened were it not for the this newfound confidence that you could have your own label, you know. Yeah. And you came from that, you know. Yeah, because people's minds were opened up, and you know, I think there was punk. There was like a very specific kind of his, you know, timeline. Really, there was punk, and everybody got very excited, including me about the energy of it and everything and soon after that 
I mean, of course, like there were two attitudes to punk, right? One was the Malcolm McLaren, yeah, Rhodes attitude: get through the majors for as much as you can, yeah, and which, <laughs> which they did very successfully. Yeah. And, um, or the other side of it, which was like do it yourself with yeah. no money. It was kind of very, you know, and I was obviously, I didn't want to sign to a record label. I didn't even think of signing to a record label, but I want, what I wanted to do is do, do the process myself. And, you know, there were a few people, there was a, there was a band called The Desperate Bicycles. I don't know if you remember them. <laughs> I know the um, name, but I don't know, know of them. Uh, they weren't they're musically very different, but, but they wrote a little manual about how to make your own record. Right. And I think they, they put it was in Rough Trade or it was printed in the Melody Maker or something like that. And it was so simple. And because I'd been working before that, up to that point, I'd been working as a as a film editor or assistant film editor. And I realized that a lot of the processes that I that were used in film were very similar to that that yeah, were used in making the in the you know, you know the physical production of a record. So I didn't find that very difficult. Um and uh, yeah, so it's funny because nowadays I'm not going. I'm not saying it was the good old days, but nowadays people talk of, about people bedroom recordings as uh, some yeah. kind of new thing, or self self released <laughs> records or something a new thing, you know. But um, yeah, obviously I've, it was going a long time ago. You know, I've got a very interesting. I mean, I just did an interview with Gary Newman yesterday, who in. Okay. Right, which is interesting, <coughs> a different vibe completely. I've never met Gary Newman in 40-odd years since in my career, which is bizarre, frankly. Um, and he always had a bit of a grudge against the fact that they kind of strode straight through, went to number one. We kicked open the door a bit, and they just walked straight through, right? Uh, I, frighteningly, I don't agree with his politics at all. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know where he stands on that now, but he was a Thatcher supporter. Yeah. Um, but uh, and that's probably why I never made an effort. But I found him incredibly agreeable, and the stories mm. that he was telling about how he started and how he discovered um, electronic music was incredible. He literally went into the studio to do a punk rock record. There happened to be a mini moog there. He 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 had an epiphany when he hit one key in the studio. And went went to the rest of the band. He'd only just joined the band, and he said, "Right, we're, this is the future. We're going to chuck all those arrangements out." And the band went, "What? What?" And he had to fight tooth and nail for the record. I think it was Beggar's Banquet to put it out. Yeah. And next thing you know, it's number one. So people yeah. come to electronic music in different ways. We we were big science fiction fan. He was at that point. For instance, I was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, did that influence your? Uh, obviously, you like Crash and JG Ballard, like we did. Yeah, I was I was into kind of JG Ballard kind of science fiction rather than the sort of um, kind of what I would call uh, I don't know if it's a good description, but near future science fiction. Yeah, rather. we discussed this. It's more like social future fiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, or imagining different futures that's yes, not exactly. involved with uh, you know kind of four-headed aliens and. Being on yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, it was that moment, wasn't it, when like you know, I mean, Kraftwerk merged. You know, people like Can and Kraftwerk and Noi and all those bands were very influenced, influential on punk. You know, very. I mean, yeah. apparently, Johnny Rotten when he left, 
John Lydon when he left the Sex Pistols wanted to join Can, you know. So, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and the Fall did that, did Dharma Suzuki track. I mean, it was well in the Buzzcocks, but you know, yeah. so it was that influence of what they call, which I hate the term, kraut rock. Yeah. The kind of explosion of punk and the DIY possibilities and cheap synthesizers all kind of happened at the same time. That's right. And also, you know, the, the kind of fallout from disco as well. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people like us and certainly a lot of other people wanted to go clubbing. The mm -hmm. discos all, all had kind of, uh, I don't know, post-punk nights or electro-futurist nights or whatever. And um, and so there was a demand for content for those sort of things for the first time, yeah, yeah, which is interesting yeah. as well. That's true. And um, and so I think disco had quite an interesting fallout because everybody regards it as kind of gay and black, but and it mm. did originate that way. But that's why it led. Oh, you got the perfect kind of confluence of kind of Georgia Moroder stuff, and mm -hmm. for me anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. And tell us about your studio, because I've only ever been once to it, and I was just going, oh fucking hell. You know, I mean, I I don't really keep synthesizers. I I I just I used to have to sell mine to get the next one along, uh, but of course I've still got some vintage. I've got the System One Hundred here and all that stuff. Yeah. But um, but tell me about your studio. I mean, how many synths do you have? Is it really extensive nowadays? Well, okay. First of all, there's this sounds a bit pompous. I've I've got essentially three studios. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, which is not really, the, I mean, I've got, well, there's one proper studio, what I call, where people, which is at Mute. Right. Which is actually in the building at Mute. It's got a lot, quite a lot of my old synths in there, more of the keyboard orientated synths, like the Mini Moog and uh, MS-20 and things like that. Right. And that's right. used, I don't really use that studio much, except for working on other people's records. Then there's my London studio. Oh, <laughs> darling. <laughs> yes, I know, well, one, one's, there's one's London studio, <laughs> uh, which was my which was my main studio, my main kind of personal workspace for many many years, which has got a lot of unbelievably beautiful instruments in it. Oh, um, right, the fetish, um, stuff, right? Sorry, the fetish stuff like buglers and I, well, I haven't got a bugler. No. Oh, right. Um, um, but there was a point, and you'll remember this very well, I'm sure, around the time the DX7 was released in 83, yeah. or, and digital music starts to be kind of more accessible. Um, people just want to get rid of all their old analog stuff because it was unreliable, you couldn't keep it in tune, you could only play one note at a time on most of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. why do you want to keep that when you can get a perfect funky bass sound on a DX7, which I didn't personally hate it, but that's I'm Me story. too, yeah. Um, and you could pick up, I mean, I got, I mean, I, I, ridiculous, ridiculously inexpensive, very rare modular synths what, in that period. What's your favourite one? Oh, favourites. Oh, you know, well, I suppose the one that I'm most proud of is my EMS Synthy 100. Oh, shut up. I want one of those. I love Which, them. And you'll hate this. You'll get. You'll hate me even more when I tell you the story. Go on. Um, Eno had it. No. Had a, sorry. No. Eno. It was. It belonged to the University of East Anglia Electronic Music Department, and um, 
they were they were chucking it out basically because they'd replaced everything with computers. Right. And it's a huge, you know, complicate complicated to use and complicated to fix machine. And I think they just wanted to get rid of it. And a guy I knew um, knew somebody there. He said, "Hey, do you want to pick this up?" And I said, "Yes. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Give him five hundred quid, and you can have it, as long as you take it away yourself." Shit, I'm so you know, and that's and that's super rare. Yeah, and it's a beautiful, and it's not just because it's rare, but it is a beautiful. It's just like a beautiful piece of art. Yeah, and. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's and it works pretty well. The bits, you know, it's a bit, you know, but it works, you know. And um, oh god, you know. Uh, so I, I, I never bought, except for one thing. I never bought something when it was a collector's item. If right. you know what I mean. Right, right, right. Yeah. Buy it, buy low, sell high. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't sell stuff. I mean, I don't, you know, because. I just move it around from one studio to another, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the one, th the well, actually, the, no, actually, that's on an equal level of the other thing that I'm really proud of owning, or you know, privileged to be owning, I should say, probably, is Craftworks original vocoder. Oh my god! Which was, um, which was one they used on Ralph and Florian, the album oh, Ralph and Florian. Yes, on album. love that. Love that album. And it's a one-off. They had it specially made. They had it commissioned. Oh, yeah. It I doesn't am. work. It didn't work. But I'm envious, nevertheless. Um, yeah, anyway. Provenance of I that. I mean, that just is, you know, that's like if, you know, having Jimi Hendrix's Stratocaster yeah, yeah. or something. Yeah. I don't know what people are talking about. But, so, um, <clears throat> but yeah, you know, was, so. Yeah, uh, sorry. I was, yeah. Doing a, uh, I was doing an interview with Martin Fry the other day. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was asking him a similar question, even though they weren't so much of an electronic act, but they did use yeah. it. They did at one point. And um, I said, you know, what's yeah, when they were called, uh, when they were called, what were they called before? Uh, oh, vice versa, yeah. Vice versa, yeah. Vice versa, I remember yeah. They, so they, they did they did that. And I said to him, you know, what's your favourite synth? And he said, oh, I don't know, there's so many. I, re I, I like a lot of them. Maybe we should, this was his idea, and I really like it. I've nicked it now. Um, maybe we should do a, um, maybe, maybe we should do a special episode of the podcast, which is called uh, Seven Deadly Synths. <laughs> <laughs> That's so Martin Fry, isn't it? He's so good yeah. with puns. And yeah. that, so I'm going to do it. And I've actually sent an email to Vince yesterday saying, you know, would you be up for it? And if, if he's not, I'm going to ring you up and ask you if you'll do it. Because um, you. you've both got equal amounts of sense, probably. I don't know. He's gone. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. He's, uh, he's way beyond. He's got a, a doubles of everything pretty much as well. No, he's got no his collection, his collection, or I don't call it collection. He uses them. It's not like some kind of, you know, he uses them all. Yeah, no, he's yeah. he's he's got some great amazing stuff, and in the but but just to finish about my three studios, one's three studios. Yeah. So about about ten years or yeah, roughly ten years ago, I bought a flat in Berlin because I sp spend a lot of time here anyway. I love it here, and I'm in Berlin right now, and um, so I thought I should get a little start a little. No, it's not a studio. It's like a, I'm I'm sitting in it now. It's uh, 
Looks good to me. Oh, I saw some modular stuff going on there. And um, and tragically, I got involved with um, Eurorack. <laughs> oh no, really? That you can pour a lot of money into that shit. And uh, I've been re and so this the studio here is basically a Euro is a Eurorack studio. Yeah. yeah, which I love as well. I love the idea of it as well. I think it's a brilliant, a brilliant format. Yeah, um, I went to um, there's a there's a big synth um, uh, conference in Sheffield. Can't remember what it's, what's it called now. It's run by Sound on Sound anyway. Um, okay, and um, it's lots of you know kind of panels and workshops and mm. and all the major manufacturers have stores and they show their latest stuff and whatever. Mm. Uh, but the one thing that always draws the biggest crowd is Eurorack stuff and the kind of more kind of edgy stuff. Everybody's looking for like, it's like looking for, you know, kind of jewels in a Pokemon game or something. But I think you can spend a lot of money on that shit and you can get such an enormously complex system that um, you wonder what to do with it in the end. Well, it is, it is you know, there's a famous T-shirt people wear so i got into euro rack i stopped making music you know um <laughs> but i love it because uh, you know i'm not trying to make records although you know i've done bits and pieces but i use it more like a almost like a therapeutic yeah yeah it is it is it is i find it very therapeutic, especially i mean i've been here now for a year as i said and i've been using it a lot and it's really helped me i think to just kind of calm down if i didn't have my studio if I didn't have mm. my studio, um, I'd have gone mad. I think during lockdown, yeah. it's it's yeah. been my uh, it's been my sanctuary. I think mm. my, not just yeah. for making music, but for just peace, you know, and, and and ignoring the outside world. I'm I'm probably like you. I've got no windows in my studio at all. I'm, there's mm. no clocks or anything. It's like an old '70s studio, you know. I love <laughs> that shit. Um, anyway, moving on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Any for any unfulfilled project ideas? I mean, like well, we, mine. I'll give you an example. Mine. I've never. Nobody's ever asked me to do a um, a full feature film, for instance. And I'd love to have a crack at that. Okay. Um. Not. I mean, not really. I mean, I know. That, I mean, I. I suppose my idea is to be able to spend more and more time playing in my studio. Uh, right. Just because I love it so much, you know. Um, I just we're just about to release me, Gareth Jones, and I. Gareth, who's the yeah, Gareth, old, yeah, yeah, old friend, producing of Depeche Mode and yeah. many, many other projects. We always used to jam, and we finally made a record together, um, which wow. is coming out, which is coming out in May, I think. Is this a plug? Uh, wow, <laughs> it's a plug. It's a plug. Um, <laughs> It's improvised. It's, we're both into modular. It's kind of improvised electronic music. That's what it is. I did Real a... Um, have you... Wow. I mean, I, I, I've never been massive on uh, improvisation. But I did mm. do... Uh, an imp f The first ever properly uh, multiplayer improvised record I did with um, some people from the Radio BBC Radiophonic Workshop about oh, wow. three or four years ago. And it was literally, we went into the studio with no ideas, none. Yeah. And just some synths. And, and we went, playing. right, let's just mess about and see what comes out of it. And when we were doing it, I felt excruciatingly embarrassed. So I thought, 
this is a load of wank. It really isn't. I don't know if it's working. Or not. So you're monitoring on headphones and the balance isn't right. We went into the studio at the end, listened to it on proper speakers. And with a, with a minimum amount of polishing up, certain bits of it sounded in, absolutely inspired, transcendental, you know. Yeah. So we, yeah. we edited those bits together and put it out. It's called Burials in Several Earths. Oh, I must um, Yeah, it's really some of it. And it was completely spontaneous. And I thought, yeah. fucking hell, it's like what it's like being a jazz player or something. And I'm not really a musician in that sense, but yeah. I am really in some ways. Yeah, I mean that's it's it was a lot of fun doing this this record. We same exactly the same. We went, you know, we met. We're both pretty busy, so we met for a couple of hours over a night over a, over like a two two month period. Just plugged us plugged our modulars in and started playing. We didn't even the only thing we did was clock ourselves and tuned up. But apart from that, we didn't talk about it at all beforehand. We just started. Were you um, were you synchronized? I mean, it was everything in time with each other. Yeah, yeah. We we had a mutual a, a clock. A clock. You know, I, yeah. I sent yeah either I sent him a clock or he sent me a clock. But that, not everything is clocked. But that we, no, we just no. had that. In. Oh, aleatoric, um, darling. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> I know all these terms now. I'm teaching. Um, <laughs> what was going to say? So, is German techno still the future? I remember having an argument with you about this, about. Oh, I don't know, 15 years ago, because you were going, oh, techno, 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 and I'm going, yeah, it's got, it's good, but it's got its limitations. Do you, do you think it's evolved to the point that you thought it was going to? I think the thing about techno that I like, and it's still very popular all over the world. It actually, had yeah, yeah. a resurgence in the last few years. Yeah. Um, God knows what people are going to be dancing to after lockdown. That's a whole different question, you know. Um, They'll have forgotten. <laughs> The thing I like about techno, I mean, a lot. I like a lot about techno, but what, the thing about it is that it's, first of all, it has to be functional mm. in the sense you have to be able to dance to it, okay? Mm. And, and of course, there's different kinds of techno, but the kind of techno that I like, it's usually only got about three, well, kick drum and a hi-hat, very rarely a snare drum, um, and some percussion. There's almost nothing going on. Because you need a lot. Because in those big clubs, you just need a lot of space for the music, you know. For right, 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 right. And and you know, so within within those kind of, within the sort of parameters of what I would call techno, a lot of people would call techno. Do you have to work within those parameters somehow? Mm. And what is amazing to me is that how that how the music has moved on, working with very strict parameters um so there's these kind of limited some people call them limitations about what you can do and what you can't do and i think that's very inspiring because you're really pushing every you're pushing every small element that you're you're using to its absolute maximum and yeah. to come up with things that are original or new or that excite people i think within those strict parameters i think it's very i think it's very exciting yeah interesting i'll tell you one thing i think is um and it's a well, it's a well-trodden path. This, but you know, um, a lot of students um, that I deal with are absolutely bamboozled by, by the amount of choice they have in terms of sounds and, and uh, virtual synths. Just too many options. Yeah. And so the what happens is they all tend to aim in in a direction something that's already successful. 
sound-wise, and I think that's really destructive. It's an unintended consequence of yeah. the freedom of choice. I uh, know, so the, the, it's kind of, it's almost, you know, it's like careful what you wish for in a way, isn't it? Yeah. When, when yeah, we were yeah. Starting, I mean, I don't know, I'm sure you had a similar, when I was starting out, the part of it was evangelism in a way. Yeah, exactly. And also you had to create your own sounds, which you don't oh, have yeah, to yeah, do now. Yeah. I'm so, still anti-preset, still hate presets. Anti-preset. Yeah, the anti-preset. <laughs> Power to the people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I've written some words down here about you. I uh, said, uh, a daring curator, and you're an animateur and a provocateur and an entrepreneur. All the ers, basically. Uh, I do say er a lot, especially <laughs> when I <laughs> Uh, impresario, that's not on her. Impresario. And yeah. I said, the <laughs> the uh, diagoleth of the electronic scene. I think that's quite good. You can have that for nothing, in fact. Thank you very much. Yeah. You kind of make things, not just because you've signed people up and put records out, but you are a nucleation site for uh, creativity. And that is a rare thing in a record label, let alone as an individual. Um, so I'm just blowing smoke up your ass while I figure out what to ask you next. Hold on a second. <laughs> so, um, uh, what's that? The, the mute. Oh yeah, you put the mute book out, didn't you? How did yeah. that do? Good. I mean, we were actually approached to do it. Uh, it wasn't ever. It wasn't our idea. Um, Who were the publishers? It was uh, Thames and Hudson. Oh, oh, I see. Excuse who me. Quite, who do really nice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Art books. And they approached us to say, would we like to do an art, you know, like a, a, an art book about mute or, you know, or, you know, using a lot of the art from day one to, to that present day. And a few people have approached me in the past about, oh, we want to do, you know, write about, do a mute book, like a written book. Yeah. I've never really fancied that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but, but I thought that would be really good. That was, that was, that was a nice idea. And, so it took a long time to get off to do and to get off the ground, but they were great to work with Thames and Hudson. They did a lot of the actual work. I mean, we did the, you know, we found the stuff and we said they'd be like this and that, but they, they did, they did a really good job of editing it and photographing all the old artwork and everything like that. Great. I think it did. I think it did pretty well. I, I don't those things are never really, unless you get really lucky. They're not about making money. It's about yeah, and uh, I mean nailing your legacy, isn't it? Really, I suppose. One of the nice things is that more and more independent record shops, or not just independent record shops, also also sell books. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and so it did quite well in those shops and the mute fans and stuff. So yeah, I mean, we, we re I was really proud of it. I was really, really pleased the way it turned out. Yeah. So um, we put out some albums. Didn't we? I went, me, and, yeah. me and Vince did a couple of albums together under the name Clark and Ware Experiment. Yeah. And um, when we uh, started first doing 3D sound stuff and, and then put it down into binaural so you could hear things on headphones, yeah. I think they were pretty good, weren't they, those yeah. albums? Looking They're back great. on them now, they stand the test of time. Uh, but what I did, one thing I think is really funny is uh, we were talking about the title of the first album. Mm -hmm. pretentious and i remember having a discussion with you saying but it's not you said it's not pretentious i said i know but we're being ironic daniel he said but you shouldn't put yourself down but i'm saying we're not putting ourselves down did i really say that okay 
Because yeah. that was that's the kind of title that would normally appeal to me. So I wanted yeah, to be yeah, yeah. That's what I thought, and I thought it's very, very Vince as well. Okay. You know, Vince, yeah. Vince is very like I'm a man of the people, and like you know, because he always used to accuse me of no, in a playful way, not accuse. He always used to uh, rib me that uh, you know he let me create all the titles for that album because he said, "Oh, you do it, Martin. You're much better at this stuff than me," you know. Uh, you're much more pretentious than me, and that's where the title <laughs> came from. Okay, and he was only teasing, but you know. Anyway, so yeah, we did that, and you very kindly agreed to do us uh, some three D packaging, which has, mm. I don't have a copy of that anymore, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, spent ages on paper engineers trying to figure out how to make a cube out of a, out of a CD yeah. cover. I remember I don't that. We've got any left, but I can check. Yeah, I, I I don't know what happened. I must have accidentally given it away. Um. So anyway, we did that, and we did Spectrum Pursuit Vehicle, which is a beautiful piece of work. And I think, uh, I know I'm saying it myself, but I think um, we're very proud of it, both myself and Vince. And people yeah. still refer to that in particular yeah. as being a, a really beautiful uh, and atmospheric. And it really fulfills the function of an ambient album. It's something you could have on, you know, listening to it under your pillow at night and um, and stuff like that, I think. Uh, and thank you very much for letting us put it out. But most oh, of all, great. thank great. you for, for, as I mentioned earlier, letting us put out the 10-CD uh, special edition, which is now incredibly popular, I have to say. Yeah. Um, I should have kept some back, as usual. <laughs> anyway, I just want to finish on a couple mm. of things. One is talking about I say, I say, I say, which... I'm glad you mentioned that, because I've got a funny story about that. Go on, tell me. What's the funny story? Well, me and Vince, well, I remember we met... Uh, we met in a pub. You, you, and the and the guys yeah. from Arabia. We met in a yeah. pub. I'm not sure if Andy was there. I think he, yeah, he was there. Just because I'd i I'd, I'd never met you. I don't think at that point. I don't think I don't think I met Vince and Andy at that point. Yeah, it's weird. So we so your name came up as a potential producer. I can't remember that process, and we we thought thought that was a good idea, and we so we had a, a chat in a pub, and. Um, we all got on very well, and it seemed like a good match, which it was. Um, but I remember you, you kind of said, you know, you said, you said okay, let's do it. And me and <laughs> I know what we just say. laughed. Was it you on the on the on being bored? No, it, was Phil, it was Phil. It was Phil, but we thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay let's ready? Do let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like um, something from a. Thunderbirds or go or something. It's like a catchphrase. Um, yeah, no, I was Sorry, thrilled, I to, I was thrilled to do that album. That entire process of making the album was probably the best experience I had as a producer with anybody I work with. Because I tell you why, it's interesting. Of course, Vince is very certain of, of what he does and how he does it. And so there's no kind of Nothing fluffy about what Vince does. He knows what he likes. He knows how to do it. He knows how to manifest it. But he's also incredibly generous about letting other people contribute ideas. Hence, Andy goes away and does a lot of the top lines and writes quite a lot of the lyrics. And then yeah, Vince yeah. will tweak them, of course, and all that stuff. But this kind of generosity of spirit thing... Uh, even stretched to you because I remember when we first presented the, you know, the mixers. I generally, when I produce things, 
I have a kind of condition when we start that people let us get on with it and and basically they get they get the chance to pass comment when we've done the first pass yeah. and 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 then we adjust it rather than interfere from an early and you stuck stuck to that but you know you are just as good a producer as I am and you and the combination of your uh, final notes and changes really mm-hmm. made really pushed that as far as I'm concerned I want to give you credit for that pushed it into an on another level particularly always which did really well yeah that uh, kind of research started there because they've been in a bit of a lull at that point and then that track really hit that was that did yeah that was an important track for them it was and also the other thing that um I didn't expect at all is is if I'm right I think I'm right in saying it did r- better than expected in America as well didn't it yeah, well, I remember being, I think, Depeche were on tour in America at that time. And I, I mean, I don't join a tour, but I pop in and out. And I went with them for a few days. I remember we went out every night afterwards and everywhere was playing always. Oh, yeah, really? In the clubs. And like, there's always been this friendly banter between Vince and Depeche. I mean, they're friends, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, they don't hang out. But obviously, Vince and Martin made that record together, which was yeah. great. Yeah. And it's like, oh, fucking erasure, you know. <laughs> Why are they playing that, you know? But, exactly, uh, exactly. It's all, I mean, good, it's all in good humour. Yeah, I mean, that, re- I mean, always is just a beautiful song, yeah. beautiful arrangement. Nice, yeah. And I think we did, between us, we all did a really good job of the mix yeah. as well. So it sounded great on the radio. Yeah, I know. And, um, a lot of, uh, I mean, I, 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 have a look at the Erasure Information Service quite a lot and, mm-hmm. you know, the various Facebook sites and what have you. And it comes up, it rates very highly in their all-time singles, I'm surprised, yeah. anyway. No, so, yeah, I'm proud of that. Um, Musically, I, it does, too. It's not just like, you know, you know it's, it is one of their yeah. best singles. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, right, we're getting close to the end of this. So, uh, at the end of all these, I do a kind of smash hits type thing where I ask you your... Not your favourite colour. Oh, I've, I've already asked you your favourite synth, so I'm <laughs> going to ask you your favourite book. Paul, ever? Well, no, it can be one of them. I'm not, you know, it's, t- it's a tough ask um, when you don't give any advance warning. But I like, I like the spontaneous thing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, regretfully, regrettably, I don't read as much anywhere near as much as I would like to, just because there's, you know. So many other things I want to do. Um, I mean, cra- I mean, I have to say that a number of J.G. Ballard books are still some of my favourite books, no question. Yeah. Um, what have I read recently? I read, I read the Owen Jones book. I thought that was really good. I don't always agree with him. No, I don't. About about the Labour Party. About the, I was very into. I mean, I'm more into politic political stuff. I read a lot of political websites and podcasts and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, me too, I'm, me too. I'm just, I'm, I, I, I'm thinking, why am I listening to this? I'm, it just makes me angry. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing I can fucking do about it. <laughs> or am I reading it? This is but, true. I nearly stood. Uh, I nearly stood as an MP um, two years ago, three years ago. Uh, and I, I had to go away for a week and think very carefully about what the consequences would be. And I realised that if I was going to do it properly, then I would have to give up music in reality. 
properly. Yeah, and I yeah. didn't want to do that, so I backed away at the last minute. But I was something I was considering doing, yeah. Because I was so enthused by the whole Corbyn project and moving yeah. on that, and then the whole thing got nixed by the by the media. Anyway, let's not let's not dwell on such things. Um, Favourite uh, film? Oh, I mean, there's, there's two things. When you talk about favourite books, favourite films, favourite records, favourite synths, there's two aspects to it. One is, which I which you have to which balance out, one is which films had the most impact on me. Yeah, all right. Let's say that then. I think it was Exter uh, Exterminating Angel, Louis, Louis Bunuel. Wow, I saw, okay. I saw, it, I saw it. It happened to be, it could have probably would have been any of the Boonwell films, but yeah, that yeah, happened to yeah. be the first one that I saw. Was that at art college? Uh, yeah, or before, around the time I was going to art college. You know, I, you know, I was, a, I mean, around that time I was like a, I was what I could, I was watch as many films as I could. Or I can't remember if it was either the beginning of art college or just before or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it changed my whole perspective of, how to, you know, how how you could do, you know, of, of expression. I think. Wow. And um, what a tip! I love that. And um, so that was, uh, you know, whether it's my favourite ever film, I can't say. I've, no, it doesn't matter. But, but that, that is the best story. That's it's definitely the one that pushed me kind of over the edge of way of thinking. I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, related to that in a way. Um, what's your favourite? Right. Oh, not favourite. What's if there's a there was one epiphanal moment in your life, one moment that kind of shifted your world on its axis, for any reason, good or bad, can you share that with us? I mean, anything, anything. It could in be the personal. Life. It could be creative. Could be. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, some people have said, and <laughs> fuck you. I have to tell you this. Sorry. The um, the the I just did Gary Newman yesterday said. And I thought, oh, he's going to say, you know, when he married his wife or something. He said, no, I was flying a, a twin-engine plane over the Pacific with my friend doing a, a circumnavigation of the globe when both engines packed up. And he said, in the, in the 10 minutes it would take for me to hit the ocean and probably beaten by sharks even if I survived, I decided I was willing to kill the other person to get the only dinghy. And I thought, okay. <laughs> I don't think you can compete with that one. No, I definitely can't. Um, there hasn't, you know, it's, I think there are a lot of, I mean, in terms of, I think a lot of things, it's hard to say because it's, I see it more as rather than one epiphany, like an evolution of epiphanies or, you know, I could say the first time I heard the Beatles. Right. Uh, on, a, on a musical level. Um which period is Beatles? Most, 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 most of most of most of the, these things are musical or film orientated. Right, right. right. I grew up. I spent my entire. I'm a bit older than you. I spent my entire teenage years, literally, in the '60s. So, my first Beatles record I heard was uh, "Please Please Me," which was actually their second single. Right. And um, that just blew my mind i was totally into music i was you know even then i was like listening to anything you know skiffle and bloody yeah, whatever yeah. lonnie donegan lonnie donegan you know johnny duncan and the bluegrass and the bluegrass you know all that stuff when Joe i was Brown. really yeah and i was you know was, uh, and um 
you know, but it was a musical evolution, you know, we went from like the Beatles, then I heard Can, and then I heard, you know, and then, but I think, you know, Autobahn, I think, is sort of from a musical point, probably changed my musical vision, not because yeah. it was electronic, because I've been listening to a lot of electronic music, but that was like, you know, I suppose you, it was like a, there was a lot of kind of tangerine dreamy cloud. I used to love Klaus Schultz a lot. Yeah. Really, really great. Really, I mean, I listen to it now. I think, fucking hell, this is, you know, this stuff done in the, you know, early 70s is amazing. Yeah. But it was kind of dreamy, you know, cosmic, kind of droney. And Autobahn was something completely different. It, it, was, it was electronic pop, kind of. Yes. It was funny. It was very minimal. I was always into minimalistic stuff, you know, that, and that's what I loved about Can when I first heard Can, which was before that. Yeah, can. just when when you know American and English music was getting very pompous and pretentious. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, 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 tremendous. Um, mm. um, and finally, mm. what's your favourite um, other musician, musical artist, composer? I know you've already gone through a few there, but mm. uh, is there any one particular one that that is like a a, a, a a continuous source of inspiration for you. There you go. That's a good way of putting it. I suppose, I mean, I've probably, I mean, it's hard to pin that down because there's a few, you know. Yeah. But I probably would have to say craft work. Yeah. In terms of my own work. Yeah. You know, I, um, they're in the sense of, you know, invention, um, their vision, their kind of, their humour. And that's one of the great things about, I like artists, artists who have got a sense of humour. Me, I mean, too. All, Me well, too. You know, I think pretty much everybody on mute, all the artists on mute, whatever kind of music they make, whatever, however dark it is, they've all got a really good sense of humour. Yeah, that's that's, right. that's um, right. Yeah. And Vince, you know. It's you know, part of humanity. Vince, yeah, got to be. It is, yeah. But I suppose I'd have to say craft work. Yeah. But then, you know, I'd also have to say can. And I'd also you have mentioned to can more than any other group in this interview, yeah. I think. Well, that's also partly because we've been working with their catalogue for a long time now, and I, right. you know, I'm huge, you know, hugely important, you know, and Noi as well. I mean, yeah. um, Steve. I tried Rice. getting into Amon Duel, but I found them a bit too uh, mysterious. Well, I like the early early Amon Duel. I used to really like. Actually, yeah. I've just ordered. I've just ordered the first record again, funny enough. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, it's always hard to pin it down. You know, I love Steve Reich. I love repetition. I love all that phasing stuff and everything like that. Yeah. I mean, total. And Terry that, Riley and C and yeah. all that stuff. Terry Riley and, yeah, Philip, yeah. early Philip, oh, not urgent, not Philip Glass, you know, all those yeah. kind of. Oh, no, I did, I did a, 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 an interview with Will Gregory the other day oh, yeah. and Adrian Utley. Uh, you know, their Moog Ensemble thing. I did a thing with them in uh, Hamburg, actually. It was really good in 3D. Yeah, they can play, Jesus. Oh, my God. They just, they, they inspire me, you know. Yeah. I didn't realise how much stuff Will had done. You know, he's, mm. yeah, I didn't realise he started with Tears for Fears, more or less. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, what an immense pleasure it's been, Dan. I haven't seen you for ages and ages. I know. And uh, you never know, you might get an unexpected phone call about seven deadly synths. <laughs> if it's the I'm, I'm up for it. 
I'm up for it. Yeah. It's great. Thank, thank, thank you for inviting me to do this podcast. Oh, no, man. It's, listen, it's, bit, it's keeping me sane, so you're doing me a service. Thank you very well, much. It's both sane, so thank you very much. All right, man. Thank you. Right. And I'll see you soon. See you, see you one day. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Daniel Miller, he is an incredible person. I told you, didn't I? I told you you'd enjoy this. He does it with such good grace and humour. Um, he's one of the f- most fun people to go out with. And, you know, kind of... He's very quiet normally and quite seems to be quite reserved. But, I mean, he, he can hold his own in anything. They're like those banging... Uh, techno nightclubs in Berlin and where he's living at the moment. Um, you know, he's just a man of many talents. And um, he's made a really fantastic career for himself with Mute and managed to maintain a kind of Diaghilev stroke impresario stroke authentic uh, voice and, and um, moving the whole nature of electronic music in this country in the right direction for decades. I mean, what's not to like like about that? How is everyone today? It's really important to keep on top of things. I hope I'm providing a little bit of distraction and cheer for you in these um, strange days. Um, I just got sent a calendar of all the uh, rearranged Heaven 17 gigs, BF gigs and stuff like that. It's quite a lot of stuff. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that's all going to pan out okay. That's something to look forward to. Um, just add another listen, myself and Glenn, to the um, arrangements that we did a year ago, almost to the day actually. Um, we just finished doing the arrangements for the... Um, for our versions of Reproduction and Travelogue, which we were going to perform. And, of course, we haven't listened to them since then, so it was quite nice to hear them again and realise that they actually sound great. So I'm very happy about that. Um, I am piling on the interviews at the moment. They're just flooding in at the moment. I've got some incredible people coming up. Um... Some lovely emails coming in. Keep those coming in electronically, martin at gmail.com. For uh, program uh, section suggestions, praises, grumbles, uh, comments, suggestions for guests, um, you name it, or stories associated with that period, actually, is quite a good one. But try not to make the emails too long, because I won't be able to read them all out. Um, try and keep them, you know, under control. Um, also, if you're struggling in these times and you need to talk to someone, um, you can always email me and um, I'll try and um, try and get back to you. So that's it for this week. Another uh, unexpectedly great guest. 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 Another unexpectedly great guest for you next week. And uh, have a good week. Things are getting better slightly, warmer slightly. Bye.